Hello, and welcome to Breaking Protocol. I'm your host, Bob Sadowick. And today, my guest is one of the foremost political operatives in American politics, and no doubt has the coolest name in media, Corrine Jean-Pierre. In 2008, Corrine worked as the Southeast Regional Political Director on the Obama for America presidential election. I met Corrine in 2011 while she was serving as the Deputy Battleground States Director for President Obama's 2012 re-election campaign. Following the re-election of President Obama, Corrine joined the Obama administration, serving as the Regional Political Director for the White House Office of Political Affairs. She joined Columbia University's faculty in 2014, where she teaches a course at the School of International and Public Affairs and was named a 2019 Pritzker Fellow at the University of Chicago Institute of Politics. Corrine is the author of the best-selling book, Moving Forward, a story of how she found her call to action in life. Today, she serves as a political analyst for MSNBC and other news media outlets, and is MoveOn's Chief Public Affairs Officer. Welcome to the show, Corrine Jean-Pierre. So great to join you. Really, really excited to have this conversation with you. So thank you for having me. Well, I'm glad you're, I'm glad you're on the show. You know, your book was so incredibly inspiring and enlightening to me. I can't tell you, I, you know, I've known you for about 10 years, but there's so much I didn't know about you. And this book just really opened up. You were so incredibly transparent. And I mean, I knew you were so connected in the world of politics, but I had no idea the lifelong background that you've had in this arena. And it all started with something else I didn't know. And that is, you were a New York City girl. You grew up in New York City. <laughs> I sure am. But before before I go into that, I want to tell every all the listeners how important uh, part uh, important part of role that you played in my life. Uh, you and Wally um, and you guys have always been incredibly tremendous and inspiring to me and lifted me up. And I wouldn't be here today without friends. Uh, like you, you guys are more than friends. You guys are family. And so I just want everybody to know that you are the real deal, Bob, and you and Wally are just, just amazing. And so just want to, so this conversation is, makes it even more important to me. And uh, so thank you. So thank you. Thank you. I, 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 they can't see the huge smile on my face. You have no idea how much that means to me. (laughs) That's extraordinary. Absolutely. Thank you, my sister. Absolutely. So tell me, so tell me about growing up in in New York City. I want to hear all about that. Oh, I have to tell you that New York City um, is is just, you know, we all say, uh, we all have different things that make us who we are. And New York City is definitely one of those things that makes me who I am today as a, as a woman, as a woman of color. Uh, I don't live in New York now. I live in the suburbs of D.C., uh, but I am, New York City is in my heart. My mom and my dad and my brothers and my sisters and my nephew lives out there uh, in New York. But it is, there's nothing like it. There's nothing between the cultures and the mosaic and the melting pot as so many uh, much better orators than I am have 
have have called the city. Um, and there's there it is a lesson. It is a life lesson um, that you can't have anywhere else. I mean, you grow up in New York City, you will be just street smart. You will have a certain culture about you uh, that many people don't. You will have an understanding of like having to fight, <laughs> having to just yeah. you know get through the day. Um, and getting things done. And so um, it is, it was like a university. It was like a, a you know, a lifelong university um, that, uh, that I really enjoyed. No doubt the experience of New York City is something to, uh, uh, to be cherished. Uh, as many Absolutely. times as I have visited there, never, never really lived in New York City, but uh, spent, I've spent quite a bit of time there. It is an extraordinary place. And you're right, it is an education. And let's talk a little bit about that education. I mean, you grew up in a relatively conservative family. You are Haitian American. Uh, your family, you were actually born in a small island nation in the Caribbean in Martinique. And then really was in your formative years, I, I would say, you spent a significant amount of time in France before your family landed in New York. And, but you come from a very tight knit, culturally intact family. And I want to hear about that experience. I mean, explain to our listeners what growing up in that kind of environment was like for you. Yeah, I talk a lot about that in my book, Moving Forward, where I talk about the immigrant experience, being an immigrant in this country. What does it mean? What does it look like? And in my particular household, uh, a Haitian culture household, um, it was different. It was very, my, both my parents are conservative. Um, you know, they, they were very strict, uh, which I appreciate today, did not appreciate when I was, <laughs> when I was younger. And, uh, and I, you know, I talk about this a lot where, you know, I, and I think if, you know, the folks who are immigrants or have immigrant parents understand this, this is what I'm about to say is that you, growing up, I was told I was going to be a doctor, lawyer, engineer, and it's understood that that's to them, that is what success looks like. That sure. is how you pull yourself out and, and, and become somebody if if you will. And so that was the kind of, that was the pressure. The pressure for me was you're going to be a doctor and they, you know, that that's what they set out for me to be. And so I spent a good part of my childhood thinking that's what I was going to be. And of course, that's not what I wanted. Uh, you know, decades later, look where I am. Right. I got right. into politics and that's another thing too, you know, talking about uh, two people who grew up in a dictatorship Haiti when they were when they were growing up was under the uh the the rule of the, the baby doc and papa doc first and then baby doc and so um they they experienced a they grew up in a country where you couldn't talk about politics where you know y you were you were under kind of this rule um and it was dangerous and it wasn't safe to talk about that um, there are many things about. Well, the it was a true dictatorship, dad, right? I mean, it was, it was a, a dictatorship. True dictatorship. Sure. It was a true dictatorship. Um, people were murdered and killed for yeah. for for expressing their for expressing their voice, you know, their beliefs. So, me going into politics or even thinking about that uh, in my childhood and in my you know teenage years even uh, was never an option because. Uh, I understood how my parents felt about politics. They had, they, they were afraid of it. In well, sense. I think it's safe to say that they grew up in an environment where the political arena was filled with some unsavory characters, if you will. Exactly. Exactly. Right? So, right. 
So yeah, so that so politics was far and beyond and never even a thought. It was more about what kind of profession can I have uh, to make me somebody, right? right? To make me uh, not have to suffer like they did or work as hard as they did. They worked six, seven days a week, really, right. six, seven days a week. And, and talk about that for a second. Your parents, your parents are, I, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I mean, from what I get from the book, they are the definition of the working class immigrant that came to this country, worked odd jobs, worked multiple jobs. If I my memory serves me correctly. Your mother did not have a formal education and like yep. a lot of immigrants that came to this country, but yet they were determined with working three and four jobs to make sure that their children had the best possible of education. And you did. They, they sent you to, you know, a private school growing up. Is that correct? Yeah, that's exactly right. Look, my dad was a New York City cab driver. My mom was a home health care aide. Uh, shout out to all of the amazing frontline workers right now in this current moment who are who are putting their lives at uh, 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 you know at risk to save us to to, to take care of all of us. Um, and that's my mom. She's one of those. She's one of those people. She spent decades doing that job. So I, my heart goes out to them and their families. But that's what she did. You know, that's what they did. Mm-hmm. They worked, like I said, six, seven days a week, fifteen-hour days, and it was church and work and their family. And that is what they focused on. And it was all to make sure that they had a better life, that their children had a better life. I mean, I live. The reason why I went to private school, I went to Catholic school, not because they had the extra money to do it. They did it because we lived in a community that had terrible education system. It was one of the worst in the um, kind of in the, in the county. And, um, and so they had no choice because they understood that education was key. Education was important. And so they, you know, scrounged up money, got another job to send us to to Catholic school. And there were times where I was sitting in the principal's office um, because my parents hadn't paid yet uh, for that month for school. And so that's what they did. Until my parents paid, you sit in the principal's office. And that's what we had to do. And sometimes it would take days for them to scrounge up the money and pay, pay what they owed. But it was because they wanted their children to have have a better education, and it was key and important to them, and they were right. Um, while there are so many other disparities and uh, and stuff in the institution that makes it hard for poor people and people of color to make it, uh, education uh, is something that they believed would help us kind of pull us through, sure. pull us through a lot of that. And I think it's fair to say that it's not even about getting a better education. I think it's fair to say in that particular environment, it was about just getting a education because exactly. the public option of education just really was non-existent, which is a whole nother show that we could do just on public education in this country. But we're here to talk about about other things at the moment. So I want to move on to you worked very hard. One of the things I didn't know about you is you were this phenomenal track star. So you had a lot of notoriety <laughs> in your school. And, I, and I'm and i assuming that what came with that, that notoriety of being a track star was, was having uh, somewhat of a typical social life in high school and all that sort of thing, which, if I'm guessing right, motivated you to move on to 
getting a college education as well. And and explain to us how you made that transition. Why the colleges that you chose? What was the driving force behind that? And obviously, that's what led to where you are today. Yeah, I mean, all of us have to go through different experiences in our lives just to get through, just to get through whatever it is, that big goal that we're, that goal that we're trying to reach. And, you know, like you said, I ran track and field. It was never something that I thought I was going to be good at. A friend of mine whose brother uh, was in track and field and we were going to that school that her older brother was going to encourage me to do uh, cross country and track and field. And I did it and it was perfect for me. It was something that I needed. I was a very shy kid. And um, and being an immigrant and being everything else, I've always felt like the outsider. And so track gave me that self-confidence, that boost of self-confidence that I needed in myself. And it was that escape that many of many young people need out of uh, out of high school. But it also encouraged me to go to college because I thought, okay, wow, you know, maybe I can run track in college. Maybe I can do like it gives you this confidence of what what could be next for you. Right. And, um, and even for college, I had to go to a college where I was able to stay at home because, or be close to home because it, because my parents couldn't afford college, right? They couldn't afford for me to go away. They couldn't afford, um, uh, for, for what most kids get when they go to college. Well, not most kids, but many kids who, most kids who could afford it, whose parents have it. I should be more clear on that. And so I, I went to a college, uh, New York Institute of Technology where I was able to be home, travel back and forth. It was affordable. Um, I didn't have to be on campus. And then when I went to grad school, I was able to go to Columbia um, and get my graduate degree there. But even there, that first semester, I commuted back and forth because I couldn't afford to live in New York City. And then finally, I got a scholarship. And then I was able to, to, to have a more normal college student experience. But we all, you know, we all have to kind of work within the boundaries that we're given just so that we can break those boundaries, right? Break those protocols. I do have to say when I was reading the book, I got a little bit of a chuckle about your living arrangement. I think what you're maybe your second year at Columbia or second semester at Columbia. I got a little chuckle out of that. That was, that was kind of, that was kind of funny. Uh, You you got blindsided a little bit, I would, I would say. Oh, we did. You still got blindsided. I mean, this is the life. Like these are the experiences that you have when you're young and you're living with multiple people. This was in graduate school housing. Yeah. One of my, uh, one of my roommates, cause we so clearly were a little older. One of my roommates uh, was from, uh, was from India. She went home, she got married and when she came back, she brought her husband with her. Yeah. <laughs> she got a little bamboozled because <laughs> when she first came back, she said, oh, you know, my husband is going to be here for about a, a week or so, a couple of weeks. And we said, fine. And then it became, oh, well, he's going to move in. And we were like, what? <laughs> so, um, it was it was not a good experience. Do not do that to your roommate. Do it not, not do okay. that, right? That's a it, lesson It's not learned. okay. It, yeah, I mean, we were graduate students, not like we were adults living uh, on our own and able to, you know, make those kind of concessions. Right. But, you know, anyway, it was it was one of those experiences that I think you can't make up. <laughs> but when you were in graduate school, that is where at some point you understood the value of having a mentor in your life or mentors in your life, if you will. And it was during that time that that's really what guided you. And 
I want I want to focus just a few minutes on how important that is and how that really impacted you as an adult. I mean, you, how that really formed your thought process. And do you still have those mentors today? Uh, yes, it was critical. The mentors that I had at that moment, at that time, was absolutely critical for me because you have to remember, I grew up thinking I was going to be a doctor and I spent a good time of my young life college experience with that process in mind, not knowing what was I, what was I truly passionate about. And um, even when I went to graduate school, I wasn't even sure. I went to get a master's in public affairs and I wasn't really quite sure what I wanted to do. And I was lucky because I had some people who took an interest in me and I was able to use and really appreciate their mentorship, their interest in me. And it turned into mentorship. One of them was the first African-American mayor of of New York City was David Dinkins. He became a really great uh, advisor to me, Esther Fuchs, Professor Esther Fuchs, who I still talk to today. I had her, I asked her for her advice just last week and, uh, and many others um, that I got to know and who helped me guide me. And, uh, you know, I teach now at Columbia University. It's really wonderful full circle. And I teach at, uh, at the school that I went to at Columbia, which is the School of International Public Affairs. I teach campaign management. So now I get to be a mentor to many of these, many of these students. And they ask me all the time for guidance. And they're in graduate school. They're in their 20s or a little later. And I always say to them, go for what you're passionate about. Take on that passion and go for it because it will make you, it'll help you achieve your success and make you a lot happier. Yes, it will be tough. It's not, we're not, we're not going to be Pollyannish about this, but it is important to go for your passion. And that's what I did in graduate school. I was finally able to go for my passion, go for what I really wanted to, to do in life, which is make a difference, help people who don't have a voice, um, you know, really help people who were like my family growing up. And so that's what I went for. And I went into, I went to do that. I, I use politics as a vehicle to do that. One of the things that you did with that passion that I found uh, was a platform that you used to really enter the political arena with an incredible amount of insight was you took the passion that you developed at Columbia and you went to work for an organization Walmart Watch. Watch, yeah. Walmart yeah. Watch. It was, uh, yep. It was started by SEIU. Yep. Walmart Watch. And 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 tell us a little bit about what you did there because I think this is really important, and I think this is exactly what what maybe was the vehicle, if you will, that drove you into the political arena. Yeah, Walmart Watch was a great experience because before Walmart Watch, I was. I was a public servant in a different type of way. I was working for elected officials. I was working for government, New York City Council, to be more precise and exact. And then I left that to do more issue-based campaign to be the people on the outside who are pushing uh, elected officials to, you know, to do better, to work on certain legislation that is going to change people's lives for the better. And so I went to work for Walmart Watch, uh, left New York City. There was that. That was another big change. I left New York City to move to Washington D.C. I had always lived in New York City. I'd never lived away from home. So that as well, uh, moving to a whole different uh, town, if you will, uh, really uh, was was a big change for me in my career at that point and in my life at that point. But like I said, Walmart Watch is is an organization that doesn't exist anymore. But at the time we were trying to, there was a big push to make 
big corporations, big box stores in particular, better corporate citizens to really, when they go into a community, to uh, to realize what they're doing to this community and if and to work in more in partnership with those communities and also to treat their to treat their employees better, offer health care, uh, increase wages, and so um, and so that's the job that I that I went I set out to do. So it's more of an activist role. It was more of a you know kind of like how do you get uh, how do you get government to work for you type of role. And so my job in particular was to talk to state legislatures across the country uh, to come up with legislation uh, on how how whether it was a fair uh, fair health care which was one legislation that was very that, that became very popular around that time uh, that dealt with big box stores to offer fair health care to their employees. Another one was the community benefits agreement, which is if a big box store came into a community, they made an agreement with the community to bring things to that community uh, that would be beneficial, that helped take care of that community. Um, but there was a big problem, too which we've talked about, Bob, which is mom and pop stores. Right. You know, they were taken out when these big box stores come in and uh, which is very devastating to see. But that is uh, an issue still today. And I would say in fairness to the big box stores, I mean, they too, they're big companies. They provide a lot of employment. They, in my view, don't pay as well as they should. I think if you look at the profits of Walmart itself, and not just a single out Walmart, but if you look at the profits of these companies and the wealth that's accumulated by these family members that own these companies, you, I just have a hard time believing they can't pay them, you know, a few extra dollars per hour. And I don't think people really understand when you grow up in a small town in the middle of America, what an extra $100 a month does to your budget, how much of a life change that is for you. Yeah, it really is. It, it's a it's a life change in a way that uh, uh, that changes, like you said, that changes everything. That changes sure. how you how you get healthcare. That changes how you provide for your family. Uh, that changes even trying to get education for yourself or your family. Um, it changes uh, it changes everything. And so um, you know, these having these conversations is particularly important. And that's one of the things that we're learning under this crisis is how these kind of middle America families, these working families, what's going on? You know, when you talk about frontline workers and you learn most frontline workers are people of color or people who are just everyday Americans and now they're putting their lives at risk or when you're seeing that people are losing their jobs and what that means uh, to them and their family. I mean, we're we're seeing that today and, and how critical it is to continue to have this conversation. Absolutely. And you took that, you took that passion that experience from working with the organization Walmart Watch, and you launched that into, at that point, a political career. And, you know, I met you back in 2011, but you actually were working on national campaigns with Obama's 2008 election campaign. That was, was that your first national campaign, the 08 campaign? It was. It was my first national campaign. I think I've worked on a total of three or four at this point. I can't even remember uh, campaigns. And uh, yeah, it was, look, in the general election, I started off with John Edwards um, in the primary, moved to North Carolina from Washington, D.C. So from that Walmart watch job, I moved to North Carolina to work on um, 
to work on John Edwards. And I was very lucky. I was very lucky. Once John Edwards dropped out, um, a couple months later, I was, I was able to move to Chicago to work on the general election for Obama. And I remember that moment very well. I write about this all the time. I've talked about this all the time and I've written about it in the book, which is like, you know, I wanted to be part of history. I wanted to be part of the history of this country where we finally elected a black president. I wanted to work on that campaign and Barack Obama, there was nothing. We will never see another Barack Obama in our lifetime. Oh, I agree with that. Um, Because he is one of a kind. And, you know, how could you, I I think back to 2008 all the time and the, how much we were inspired, how great of an orator he was, how, and still is clearly, and how he created a movement. He really did. He created a movement and excited so many just across the board, whether you were young, black, Latino, white, you know, just across the board, older. And he gave you an inspiration and this, a meaning and the thinking that we can make this country better and we can do this together. And so I wanted to be part of that. And so, yeah, it catapulted me, Walmart Watch, to working on a national campaign. And that catapulted me into where I am today. And I worked in the White House. I've worked on other uh, uh, campaigns as a consultant as in their very varying different ways and uh, and now I'm on TV giving political analysis uh, because of all of these experiences that I've had in the past so let's talk a little bit about that White House thing that White House experience because working in the private sector maybe you go from one corporation to another and maybe the cultural environment might change a little bit but it's still the same you know office type environment um, I want to talk about an experience that there is only one of a kind. It is truly one of a kind. And that is when you say to a stranger on the street that says, oh, well, what do you do here in D.C.? And your answer is, I work at the White House. That's got to be, that's got to be the coolest thing ever. And especially when you worked in the Obama White House, right? It is because there was a certain, there was a certain uh, there's a certain feeling of respect and admiration for the man, <laughs> you of know? Course. Uh, and so if you're connected to that white house or to the man, uh, who, who is Barack Obama? Yeah, there was, there was an awe. There was an awe about, uh, working in that white house. And it's so funny though. I tell this, I, t- I say this also all the time, which is at the moment you're so, you're working so such long hours, you're working constantly, you're, you were, you know, we were on blackberries at the time for me, at least for me, just speaking for myself, I, I missed out on those experiences that I was having that was mind-blowing, right? Being on Air Force One, being on Air Force Two, briefing the president, being in the Oval Office, being in the West Wing, um, going to EOB. EOB is where our office was. So anytime you went to the West Wing uh, to have a meeting or to speak to someone, that was pretty awesome. But I didn't, it didn't sink in until afterwards because yeah, there were moments where I walked into the building where I walked into, to the white house grounds. And I felt like, wow, I can't believe I'm here as an immigrant, uh, you know, daughter of, of, of Haitian immigrants, uh, growing up the way that I do as working class, poor, um, family that I was here, but then you get so, you get so tied into, 
uh, what's happening at the moment that sometimes you don't stop to, you know, as they say, stop and smell the roses and you just don't. And I would have these conversations with my friends and I'd be like, oh yeah, you know, today or my family member, I was on Air Force One, I was on Air Force Two, whatever the story was. And they would be like, do you hear yourself? Do you hear what you're saying? You're saying that you were on Air Force Two today or you were on Air Force One. I'm like, oh my gosh, you're right. But you're so exhausted. You're so tired. Uh, because there was a lot of stress on this White House, you know, they, there was an expectation. Um, and because he was the first black president, there were people who, who there were people out there who he was under a microscope, right? Sure, who were thinking he was going he was. to fail. And so that means all of us had to bring our best. I do remember when we left for the Dominican Republic uh, for, and as many listeners know, my husband served as the U.S. ambassador to the Dominican Republic in the second administration. When we went, when President Obama sent my husband to the Dominican Republic, basically Valerie Jarrett said, and I'll never kind of forget this, basically said to Wally, you're the ambassador. The decisions are yours to make. Do not embarrass the president. Yeah. You know, and that was really our only job. Like, do your job, do it well, but do not embarrass the president. And and yeah. I think all of us took that to heart. I mean, we really truly did because we were not in it for our own personal success. We were truly in it for the success of Barack Obama. Yeah, yeah, I totally agree. It's like, you know, I mean, was that the feeling to... around the White House with the the various yeah. folks that you worked with? Yeah, absolutely. That was the feeling of Barack Obama. Like, do not, <laughs> you know, this you are doing this not just for the country, of course, which is why we're there, and certainly not just for yourself, but because of this president, because of Barack Obama. And it was like, do not disappoint, do not screw this up, get this right, um, and we need him to succeed. And I was there, too, the first two years of the White House, where, guess what, we had another election. We had a re-election that we, you know, this was not just like a first-term situation. We had to make sure that we did everything right because we had to put him back out there to to get re-elected again in just a few years. So there was that thinking as well. Like, we had to do this right. We could not screw this up. And, you know, any time that I called someone on behalf of the White House, the Obama administration, or was out there talking on behalf of Obama or behalf of the administration, you knew you carried yourself a certain way. Sure. You knew you had to speak a certain way um, because you were the voice of the White House, but the voice of President Barack Obama. So just to sidestep here real quick, tell us about the first time you stepped foot into Air Force One. This had, this had, not, not, I, mean, I never, I have never been on Air Force One or Air Force Two. Surprise. I'm surprised. I'm surprised. You know, yeah. You told me that you had that great story about Air Force Two, like waiting at, on the tarmac. That's yeah, a great story. Yeah. That was great. When, when uh, Vice President Biden came to visit us in the Dominican Republic, it was, we met him at the airport and we literally were, you know, unlike commercial aircraft that, you know, pull up to a gate and everybody deplanes through a jet bridge. It's not like that with Air Force One and Air Force Two. You know, they're out they're out far away from the terminal building on a tarmac. And and so we were out there waiting for him to come down the air stairs. And uh but we still didn't get to go on the plane. So I'm just right. so, right. so tell tell us yeah. just a little bit. Give us a little taste so, of that. So the whole I mean look the whole thing is amazing, right? You you get you get the you get the 
the calendar or the, you know, the, the itinerary for the day and you see that you are manifested on the on Air Force One, which is amazing. So you see that. <laughs> and then you, you know, you arrive to the to the White House grounds, you, you go in, you get to ride in a motorcade, which is a whole other experience. The motorcade is like everything stops. He gets into, I, I think it's called the Beast, right? The, the right. limo yeah. where the president rides in, and then you're in, you're in that van, and you're 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 just going through uh, D.C. into Maryland to uh, to Andrews to get on Air Force. I mean, that whole experience is is, is you're in awe. It's, yeah. it's, it's just it's just it, it takes your breath away. It really does. And the plane is big. Air Force One is is massive. It is a massive, massive plane. You got reporters on there that's in one area. You have, you know, the senior team, clearly the president. I mean, it's big. And then you are, um, you know, it's really like the seating is like first class seating. You sit there, your name is on your seat. You get an itinerary of what's going to be uh, served, you know, for lunch or breakfast, whatever it is. Um, and you take, I take all those rem- memorabilia with me. I still have them. They're oh, in a, fantastic. you know, in like a Tupperware box. <laughs> yeah. Uh, stored away. Cause I remember, you know, and I, sometimes I go back and I, well, your daughter will like, want wow. to look at those one day, you know, yeah, for sure. Exactly. You, you even take the napkins, right. That has like the White House seal on it. I think I, st- I think I still have some from the embassy actually. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. I mean, you, you go to the bathroom of the residence, you know, when you go to one of those uh, events at the White House and, you you, you know, they're, they're in the bathroom, these little uh, amazing um, napkins. And so you just kind of, it's it's just, and there are people who are their flight attendants. Who, sure. I mean, it's just amazing. The whole thing is amazing. And and the president, you're on the plane with the president of the United States, and so that has to be so like surreal, it. right? I mean, you're on it's, it's an really aircraft surreal. with the president, yeah, right. That's so exactly it. speaking that's of presidents, um, and and I know we're we're limited on time here today, but we we've got to talk a little bit about what's going on in our country today. I woke up this morning and I feel like we're broken. I feel like we're broken, mm. and. Mm. Um, and I just, you know, look, I'm not, I'm not a politician. I'm a policy wonk. And, mm-hmm. you know, I could express my opinions about what I think should or should not be done. But I just feel we're broken. I was listening early this morning to Congresswoman Eshu from California, who was speaking about the House is now back in session. And there is a group of Republicans and, and, I'm sorry to use the, I'm not labeling them. That's just, they are part of the Republican caucus that are on the House floor doing the people's business and absolutely refuse to wear a mask, exposing their fellow colleagues potentially to this coronavirus. And 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 for what reason? What What is the harm? I don't understand the psyche behind that. So someone who does understand the politics of all of this, that being you. What's your reaction to this, Corrine? Well, my first reaction is all of us, we need to go out on November 3rd, vote by mail, probably will be the safest thing to do. And we need to make sure that we vote these folks out. 
I mean, it is really on us as a country. If we want to save our country, if we do believe that our country is broken and we want to stop this madness, and it's not just the presidency, we have to vote down the ballot. We have to make sure that we, we vote, you know, vote out the man in the White House currently right now, the man baby out. We have to make sure that we make, we make Mitch McConnell a minority leader, not majority leader. Take that, take that title away. Well, from I'd him. like we to take to his sure title away, up. period, right? I want Mitch McConnell out, period. You know, we've got Amy McGrath is an excellent candidate in Kentucky. And people there should get go. behind Amy McGrath. There we go. We got to get that majority and we can do it with in Kentucky for sure. And that's the Senate. We have to hold on to the House. We got to make sure we take care of our state legislatures as well. That's a critical and important. Look, that's what we got to do. That's what we got to do. We've been waiting like three years for this moment, almost four years for this moment. And to your question about these Republicans, in the House or in Capitol um, right now, or just in, in a whole the Republican Party, they've allowed themselves to be taken over by a man who is morally bankrupt, and that is Donald Trump. Absolutely. And it is unbelievable that they have allowed this to happen, especially this is right. Remember, this is a party that is all about family values. They're culpable. <laughs> right? Yeah. They're, yeah. they're culpable. Yeah, I mean, they... They're culpable, and they are such hypocrites. They are such hypocrites. It really and amazes me. It, and this is what this is all is. It's all if there is this kind of in, in, insane, weird cult feeling to it too. Because you know why they don't want to wear a mask? They don't want to wear a mask because they're making it first of all partisan, very political. Because that's the way that Republicans run the show nowadays. But they're also doing it to please the president of the United States, Donald Trump. They want to show Donald Trump that they are with him. You're not wearing a mask, so we won't wear a mask. You know, it is it is incredible. These are grown men. These are grown people sure. who are supposed to be representing and their you know, constituents. You know what amazes me, and I was reading in your book, you know, Donald Trump clearly is, at the very least, Donald Trump is an unsavory character. And you yourself as written in the book, worked for a couple of unsavory characters. You worked <laughs> you worked for John Edwards, as as we already have noted, and you worked for Anthony Weiner, which the poor guy, anybody with the last name Weiner, let's just get real, he was doomed from the get-go. But but both of them, they crossed a moral line that the Democratic Party and Democratic constituency held them accountable for. And what they did pales in comparison to the characteristics and the actions that Donald Trump has has not only uh, portrayed in his presidency, but executed before he was even elected. Are we past that now? Are we past the point of any kind of moral compass being required for an elected leader? It is such a good question, because in many ways, I feel like Donald Trump is an anomaly. And what I mean by that is the way that cultish behavior, the way he's taken over the Republican Party, I don't know anybody will have that same power, that same ability to take it over in that way and be as crass and morally bankrupt as as he is. And, you know, look, I have a lot of issues with the Republican Party. I feel like this is Donald Trump did just all of a sudden come in and all of it changed. I mean, a lot of it is something that they have set up. Uh, they have been for a long time, 
and Donald Trump has just exposed them. But I do think he is somewhat of an anomaly. And I, 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 I don't think that we will see another Donald Trump. I hopefully not my lifetime. I don't want to see another Donald Trump, but he's like, he, it's almost like the way we talk about Barack Obama. There's nobody, there's, there will be no great orator, no great, you know, person like Barack Obama in our lifetime. I feel like there will be no, (laughs) there will be no one like Donald Trump. Well, from, from your mouth to the good Lord's ears, I hope. I hope so. Maybe decades, decades from now, one will pop up and be like, Oh, this looks familiar. You know, and historians will, will, will bring him up. This is, what they've allowed to happen. You know, we have to remember Donald Trump didn't come from anywhere. He was a very public person for a long time. We know who he is, especially for folks like me who grew up in New York. We know exactly what Donald Trump is. But even in 2011, he was the spokesperson for birtherism. He made it very, very clear that he was a birther. I mean, he asked for, you know, President Obama's birth certificate, and he had to go and, and get his long-form birth certificate, this is Barack Obama, because of the campaign that Donald Trump uh, ran. And guess who begged, practically begged for his endorsement? Who did that in 2012? Right. It was Mitt Romney, right. the Republican nominee. So they deserve all of this that's happened. We as a country, you know, there's a you know, there's a longer conversation if we deserve this or not because of the history of this country and how we've gotten to this moment, clearly. But, um, but you know, I mean, can you think, imagine Mitt Romney, after birtherism, was asking for Donald Trump's endorsement, mm-hmm. practically begging for it. And so we know who he is. He ran a, I mean, 2015, 2016, he made it very clear what type of campaign he was running. And there's no uh, doubt that Mitt Romney campaign. is paying for that today, right? There's no doubt yeah, Mitt Romney absolutely, is paying for that. Absolutely. And yeah. so they all will. Yeah. I think yeah. I think there will be a price to be paid on November 3rd. I really, really do believe this. We just have to make sure that we vote. But I do believe that there will be a plat price to be paid for the, the Republican Party. Well, whether will. you vote or whether you don't, you are voting. And you're, yeah, you're, you, so you either are actively expressing your opinion by filling out a ballot or you are allowing your opinion to be expressed by somebody else. So, exp- Amen, brother. You know, Amen. So express your own opinion. You know, we're, we're going to wrap up here, but I want to ask you just one quick thing. So I, I like because my show is called Breaking Protocol. I know you have broken so many protocols through the course of your life and your career, but is there one time that you broke protocol where you felt like I have to do this? I have to take, I have to step outside the lane here and do what's right. This is, this is going, this is where my passion comes into play, so to speak. Gosh, you know, we've talked about this before. And first of all, breaking protocol, what a great name for, for your show, Bob, because Thank that you. is you every day. Thank all you so day. much. You are breaking protocol. Yeah, and somebody's got to, right? <laughs> <laughs> you are. Um, and for a good reason, not for bad, for good reasons. And we love you for it. You know, like I said, I think I told you this before, I feel like I break protocol, protocols every day um, in my life as a mom, as a black woman, as a gay woman, um, as someone who has a voice on um, on a political platform like MSNBC, lucky enough to have that and get paid to do that. And as a person who works for an organization that, you know, that takes it to the streets, that lifts up people's voices, I feel like I do that every day. 
By yeah. the way, Joy Reid is still not following me on Twitter. I, I need you to do something oh, I have about to fix this. That. I have to fix that. I will. I will. I will fix that. <laughs> but I got. I got. I got uh, Jonathan Swan to follow you. I just got to work on Joy. I'm behind. I'm behind the eight ball on that one. There you go. But uh, but yeah, I just you know I think you know one of the things though I'll, I'm gonna I'm gonna flip that question a little bit and take it to a, a personal place is that I'm trying to teach my kid, our daughter. Uh, so later to, to be a protocol breaker, right? I want her uh, to be that person. I want her to be someone that doesn't take the no for an answer, that feels like she should be in that room, she should be around the table, or she should have that job. And that is my that the biggest honor that I have as a parent uh, to a young girl of color who is amazing and beautiful and brilliant in, at five, and it is it is what we are trying to instill in her to be independent, to have your voice, to never let anyone dim your voice, and to be that breaking protocol person. And uh, and that is that is I think that is the most important job that I have right now. And when I think about that question, that's that is so fantastic. That is, you know, your daughter is lucky to have a mother like you. There is no doubt about it. Tell me Thank when. Thank you, my friend. Tell me when Corinne Jean Pierre is going to be on the ballot. Oh, <laughs> I didn't know that was coming. I already forgot. Yes. Oh man, I get that question all the time. When I was on the book tour, my book tour for about two months, that was the question that I got all every every night, every day. Um, look, I mean, I'm going to be really honest. I've thought about it. I seriously have thought about about running um, for office, and um, and what I guess what what kind of geared me away from it is when Donald Trump got elected and I, and I wanted to be out there fighting. I wanted to, to, to use my platform and I chose just a different path. And I do do that through the, you know, the different platforms that I currently have today, luckily have today uh, with move on with MSNBC and in other ways as a professor, I use that platform um, to really uh, speak up and speak out and make it loud and clear that the, the the situation that we're in as a country is not okay and we need to change that. And I like I tell my students all the time to go after what you're passionate about. When it comes to running, I have to feel it. I have to be passionate about it. Um, I have to feel like I'm going to make a change. I have to feel like I am needed in this moment, uh, in this position, because I will make a change and do something real. And when that happens, I will listen to the calling and I will probably take it. But it hasn't happened yet. And so I think what I'm doing, I am where I'm supposed to be in this moment, in this fight. Well, when you are ready, I uh, will be waiting in the wings to sign up to be a volunteer (laughs) on your campaign. I will be there for you, my friend. Absolutely. You'll be in that kitchen table, Bob. I I would be honored. I would be honored. Corrine Jean-Pierre, you are an extraordinary, extraordinary American. And we are so fortunate to have someone with your poise and your grace and your personality and your glamour. You not probably you're the most glamorous woman on MSNBC, but I want to tell you that you are a incredible representative of the American people and we wish you nothing but the absolute best and much success and good health in the future. Thank you my friend Bob. I love you so much. Thank you for this time and uh, this great conversation and I hope to see you soon. 
but I'm going to give you a virtual hug right now. I'm Thank giving you, you one friend. back. And when this is all over and we can break bread together again, we will do that, my friend. All right, my friend. Keep breaking protocol, my friend. Keep breaking the protocol. Thank you. You have a good one now. And thank you for being with us today. I would like to thank our listeners for listening to Breaking Protocol with Bob Sadowick. Please click subscribe to receive notification of our future podcast. And if you have not had an opportunity to read my book, Breaking Protocol, Forging a Path Beyond Diplomacy, it is available from your favorite online retailer or download it to your Kindle, tablet, or smartphone. Thank you once again for joining us and have a wonderful day. Many blessings.